Hello and welcome to the China Research Group weekly podcast. I'm Julia Pamely and I'm Chris Cash. Every week we will be bringing you insight from experts and fresh analysis on the stories driving the UK's relationship with China and China's relationship with the world. On today's episode of the China Research Group Talks on China podcast, um, we are lucky to be joined by Emily de la Broya. Emily is a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies uh, with a focus on China policy. She is also the co-founder of Horizon Advisory, a consulting firm focused on the implications of China's competitive approach to geopolitics. Emily uses primary source Chinese language materials to provide insight on geopolitical, technological and economic change for decision makers and was the first Western analyst to document Beijing's China Standards 2035 National Plan, which lays out a blueprint for China's government and leading technology companies to set global standards for emerging tech. Emily, welcome to the China Research Group podcast. It's been a long time coming. Uh, and you're actually the first guest we've been able to record face to face, which is really exciting for us. Um, so welcome to London. I believe you're in town for an event on China's global digital strategy, um, which is marking the the launch of a report by the National Bureau of, of Asian Research. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about the report and why the race to shape the global digital architecture um, has intensified? Of course. First, thank you. Um, thank you for having me on. It's fantastic to be here. I wish everyone could see this podcasting studio because it's very impressive. There are a lot of big microphones. Um, the short of this, the idea of this report is that China sees the digital revolution as a chance to leapfrog the global system and to rewrite its rules. Effectively, that up to this point, China's been rising within an existing international paradigm that's led by um, and was originally established by the current global leaders. And that means that it advantages them or has the potential to advantage them over China. Now, because there's a new industrial revolution, which is the digital revolution taking place, China sees a chance not just to rise within that paradigm, but actually to rewrite it um, and to create a new global system that privileges China and Chinese players over everybody else. And how is the Chinese government then using data and digital technology to to implement a kind of global strategy which seeks to increase China's control um, and influence over the global digital landscape, as, as you just mentioned? And what, what really matters to Beijing, do you think, in terms of its digital ambitions? The core of China's diagnosis is that if it can control data, it can control the global system. And it can control every the production, the distribution, the consumption of every other important resource, but also of ideas um, and the movement of people. This idea of controlling information at a first level, it involves having superior access to information. Beijing knows that if it can cement superiority of information access, it can better understand and compete in everything from the informational to the commercial to the military competition. But the next B is that China also wants to shape the movement of information. Because if Beijing can shape that, it can also shape everything else that relies on it. How goods move, where, to whom, at what pace, what systems they go through, um, which information streams we receive, and how they're targeted. And the idea is that this gives China not just an advantage in competition, but allows it like actually to create the playing field in which competition takes place. And what might be the the impacts of of how Beijing might rewrite these rules? So effectively, you end up in an environment where 
there is no ability to compete and really no ability to operate without China's um, you know, consent in any field, whether that's military or commercial or just about anything else. So you end up in an environment where, for example, every supply chain is dependent on Chinese systems. So Beijing knows which resources are being bought by whom and going where and can make sure that its companies are better able to fill that those needs, but also so that Beijing can say, you know what, actually today I don't want those resources to go there, or I want them to make a stop at this place first. Um, you also end up in an environment where, say, militarily, China can not only operate better in the battlefield, but also decide that on any given day it's going to distort the information or deny the information of its adversary. And you take these and you apply them really across domains, and you end up in a world where not every single thing pretty much in the virtual and in the physical spaces is dependent on Beijing. Later, we'll move on to a couple of the themes that you've mentioned there in terms of information flows, infrastructure and, and military civil civil fusion, which you, you sort of touched upon there. Um, but I, w I want to move on to the idea of technical standard setting, which I know you, you've written and, and spoken a lot about in the past. And for those who maybe don't know, th this standard setting is sort of the ability to, to shape the products, services and, and processes that consumers around the world rely on every day, um, including everything from kind of the dimensions of a, a container, a shipping container, right, to Wi-Fi or protocols for, for routing in internet traffic. Um, and historically, I guess they've sort of been pioneered by the West, but but China is now playing a much larger role in, in promoting its kind of um, domestic and international players' standards. And um, the examples that come to mind are sort of Huawei having the most 5G patent applications or promoting its kind of new IP standard for, for core network technology growing number of Chinese participants in kind of international standard setting bodies. And it fits into this idea that you've spoken about, about um, that, that power is kind of now a, a function of capturing data and, and controlling the, the architecture of its exchange. And, and as I mentioned at the beginning, you were one of the first analysts to, to translate and unpack this China standards 2035 plan in which China kind of outlined its intentions to, to dominate the next generation of technologies. Um, so I, I guess fundamentally, I'd like to ask, how does China's approach to standard setting differ to that of the US, the UK and, and its allies? And um, which technologies is Beijing really aiming to be instrumental in setting standards in? Standards are like this weird, you know, formerly in these kind of conversations, like backwater field that is incredibly important, but that hasn't really been discussed or recognized until recently. Like these are the rules for interoperability in a globalized system. Um, they're the rules for how technologies work, but also how to make sure that they're interoperable. Um, and also things that are, might not be considered technologies like sizes of containers, as you said, or screw threads. Um, and the thing about standards is they come with this major strategic value. If a given entity sets a standard in a field, they can lock in a role for their product or their technology in that field. They can also shape how it's going to develop and what kind of um, other technologies or other systems might be advantaged or might get enshrined in its future development. And this is and has been for a long time very well recognized in the commercial field. And companies have actively been you know, competing to set standards because they know that if they do so, then they're able to capture markets. And it's very, you know, that's very straightforward. It's very clear. It's what standards are. China's distinct because Beijing realized that a country can claim those benefits too. Um, that 
if Chinese companies broadly set standards, then Chinese companies broadly can claim markets and shape how those markets are going to evolve. And based on that understanding, for the past two decades in particular, and actually you know, six years or seven years even more so, China has very actively been competing to set international standards, which means, for example, coordinating its companies all to work together in standard setting organizations to vote as a block. And you know, at one level, that's no different than what other companies have been doing because they've all been competing. The difference is, of course, that China is unifying its entire private sector around this agenda for the sake of the nation state's ambitions, whereas commercial players have been and are acting in their own individual interests. And therefore, in this current dynamic, they get steamrolled by China. Right. It's slightly different with kind of China's model of state capitalism and practices that perhaps um, we wouldn't be on board with in, in liberal democracies. And, and when they're sort of being enforced on a global level, um, it brings up some some kind of interesting questions. And on the subject of standards, I can appreciate that China's massive industrial capacity allows Beijing to, to almost gain an edge. And it's kind of this centralized approach and, and pure scale um, allows its domestic market market almost to act as a, a test bed for, for tech innov- innovation and, and driving these new standards. What I kind of want to know is, have we actually seen evidence of Beijing using this industrial might and market size to, to kind of incentivize other international entities to, to adopt Chinese digital infrastructure platform standards and norms? Um, you know, is it actually forcing its standards on the, the rest of the world? Yeah, and I'm glad you raised that industrial capacity point too, because the areas, and you know, this is very intuitive um, and perhaps obvious, but the areas where you see the greatest Chinese progress in terms of controlling the standard setting ecosystem are the areas where it has significant industrial advantage. So telecoms is the obvious example here. Beijing dominates that industry chain. Accordingly, it's been able to dominate the standards ecosystem. Um, in terms of influencing the rest of the international community through China's market and industrial capacity, there are a couple different avenues primarily where this plays out. One is that, so you can set standards in the international organizations that are in charge of developing them, but also a lot of standard setting is kind of a de facto thing. That if you build out an entire telecoms network on a certain set of standards in a given country, that's the fact on the ground there. Um, And then that becomes the standard that that country wants to have adopted because it's what they're using. And we absolutely, that's just a function. China's digital infrastructure construction internationally is proliferating Chinese standards internationally. Um, So is the proliferation of Chinese platforms. But then you also get like more acute forms of Chinese influence over standards. So there are a ton of anecdotal examples, um, usually that come, you know, are shared under oath of secrecy, but examples of China advancing a standard in an international organization, like standard defining organization. And then you'll see when it comes to vote on it, representatives from, for example, you know, in advanced technology, a bunch of emerging economies that have no skin in the game, that have never voted on this subject before, flood the room and vote in favor of China's standards. And that really only makes sense if it's China putting its thumb on the scale. Um, the other thing you see is China coercing its companies into voting for standards. There was a big hullabaloo in 2016 when the Lenovo CEO voted for um, a European advanced alternative to a Huawei 5G standard over the Huawei standard. And he had to issue like a public apology. He got lambasted in social media and has they've never voted that way again. 
I think that's fascinating. You, you talk about sort of the, the, the global south or maybe countries along the Belt and Road, which again, we'll come on to um, in a bit. But the, the kind of counter argument to, to what you've just said is that, you know, the technical standards community operates on this, this basis of pure industry leadership, I guess, um, and kind of the voluntary adoption of standards. And that China's contributions have actually been, you know, kind of so poor that the standards haven't and won't be upheld on a global level. But I guess, if these international bodies are able to push the standards and, and China's kind of developing influence and providing solutions through the digital Silk Road, a lot of these countries are, are naturally sort of going to back China. There's not going to be because there's not sort of any alternative. And I wanted to talk a bit specifically about ports and logistics, which we mentioned briefly, but again, a sector which you've written about, which you argue showcases Beijing's quest to, to set international standards um, and listeners might be aware that the Maritime Silk Road is um, obviously a key part of, of China's Belt and Road strategy to create these points of influence across the world with Chinese companies kind of engaging in, in port development projects across the, the Indo-Pacific and increasingly in, in Europe too. And you've talked, you know, at length um, about this kind of fascinating case of, of a Chinese state-backed logistics platform called, called Lodging, which you've described as a super app, I think, and it, it aggregates um, international data on the shipments of goods. Um, and this Lodging is now being promoted by Beijing as a global standard for, for shipping logistics. C- can you perhaps describe how lodging functions and why it maybe should be a, a cause for concern for policymakers. Yes, thank you for teeing this one up. Um, logistics and actually similarly like industrial internet of things are really good examples of what China is trying to accomplish, like really good, very tangible ones of what China is trying to accomplish, why China has an asymmetric advantage of it in it, and then what the implications could be. So these are systems that when they're um, digitized or information, informatized, um, very concretely involve the virtual environment shaping the physical environment. Like an IT logistics system is going to be what the movement of physical goods depends on and is going to collect information on that. Just the way the industrial internet of things is what manufacturing depends on and collects information on that. Um, China calls this like the integration of industrialization and informatization. And it's a big priority because China's effort is to use informatization to control the industrial environment. And then the other B is that, so, sorry, I'll go back to logging real quick. That's an example of it. It's a Chinese um, information hub controlled by the Ministry of Transport that's been advanced domestically and also um, being proliferated internationally that, exactly as you said, provides an information repository and collector for the movement of goods um, and also uh, internationally and also their processing. So, like, bills of lading at ports would be integrated into this customs data, but also um, AIS data on movement of ships, say, transporting what internationally. And that's really valuable because the current logistics ecosystem is incredibly fragmented and it's way simpler. It's way more effective if you have a system that's going to be following how things move. Um, but it's also a huge strategic advantage for China because they get to collect information on all of these things. And moreover, they lock in dependence because if the movement of goods depends on the Chinese system, then they at any given point can shape that movement or... Um, and it's run by the Ministry of Transport, is that, is that right? Yeah. In this case, it's run by the Ministry of Transport. And the other beat on this is, like, this is a hugely strategic valuable, strategically valuable thing. Everybody should want to build this particular system, but it's a long-term bet. 
and market economies these days tend to operate on short-term cycles. And China's pretty remarkable in terms of being a technologically industrial advanced country that is willing to place bets for the long term. Um, and that makes it pretty much a lone player that's going to propose solutions like this that have major implications. Yeah, and I think we've already, maybe not with lodging specifically, but we've already seen examples, I think, with the, the Piraeus port in Greece of of Chinese um, infrastructure building and influence, um, you know, c- convincing Greece to, to vote with them or, or not vote on, uh, I think, an EU human rights resolution in, in 2017. Um, so, yeah, logic is definitely something to, to keep an eye on. And the reason that, that we actually first got in touch was about China's near monopoly of, of the supply of critical minerals, I think. We were writing a report at the time um, and you sort of identified logic as, as helping facilitate this this stranglehold of the the supply chain for, for critical minerals, um, citing the kind of fascinating or or perhaps slightly disconcerting example of an Australian rare earth mining company that operates a facility in, in Malaysia, I think. Could you perhaps, to kind of further explain how, how this logic works and kind of um, embeds um, China's monopoly, how, could you perhaps elaborate on, on this case study of, of this Malaysian port and um, how it illustrates the fact that I guess we've sometimes overlooked this notion of the, the governance of the architecture of exchange, I think you call it, um, when we talk about investing in diversifying supply chains or, or tackling strategic dependence on authoritarian states? Yeah, one of the key points of this is that of this you know, being logging and other examples like it, is that they allow China to project power internationally. So in the rare earth case, China effectively has a monopoly over global rare earth supply, but there are also other sources internationally. Um, and the case we talked about is one where it's an Australian company investing in rare earth production in Malaysia. And but the production site, the port it goes through is a port that's tied into Chinese information logistics systems. And so what this risks creating as a dynamic is one in which even as the global system tries to invest in sources of critical mineral supply or critical material supply outside of China, they do so on systems that depend on China. And so Beijing is able to extend its control over critical materials across the world. And I mean, you can see a similar risk playing out in, I mean, this is a rare risk case that should you know, trigger our concerns over that. But we're all thinking about Russia these days and sanctions. Chinese dependence has impl- on system dependence on Chinese systems like this has implications for that too. How are we supposed to track where goods are going, where money is going, and if that should trigger sanctions concerns? If all of that's taking place on Chinese systems where they control the information. Right. I think we've started thinking a bit more about tackling strategic dependence, particularly since the pandemic, right, and PPE coming from China. So the goods themselves we're thinking about, but maybe not those um, systems of exchange. Um, so that's maybe maybe the next step for policymakers to look at. To just kind of round off um, in the report, I think you talk a bit about um, formulating a comprehensive response Um So maybe we could finish by discussing some sort of solutions or or recommendations for the US, UK and their allies to to counter China's digital ambitions or or at least provide alternatives. And how can democracies work together to establish these platforms or systems that that actually help reinforce liberal democratic values? Is it purely a case of investing in research and development? And how can we sort of reallocate or, or move capital towards the infrastructure that Beijing is investing in and implementing at such scale? 
that point you just made as you asked that question is so important, the point of having an alternative. Right now, one of the biggest problems about responding to China's digital strategy is that there is not an alternative, whether that's in terms of value chains and the products on which digital technologies are built, in terms of digital systems like logging, um, like any other information platform, or even in terms of a vision of what digital governance entails. There isn't a consensus and there isn't supply from like-minded countries, um, which means that there's a lot that has to be done and it's a little overwhelming, but it's also like absolutely necessary and absolutely necessary right now. Um, there needs to be an alignment on construction of digital infrastructure internationally, whether that's you know, getting the US's Build Back Better World aligned with Europe's global gateways um, or getting on the same page of public-private partnerships. Those need to be, those efforts need to be working together. There also needs to be an alignment in terms of value chain resilience. None of the, no country, no matter you know, how significant other than China is going to be able to develop the integrated value chains that China has. And therefore there needs to be a multilateral value chain approach. And then there's digital governance. Like we need to be shaping the rules right now while there's still time and while there's still a position of leadership in the global system so that there is actually an architecture that's an alternative to China's and that protects norms. And we don't even have a vision of what that is, let alone the cooperation necessary to make it happen. So you, you don't think that we've kind of made a start right now with the, the with schemes such as the US-EU Trade Tech Council, the, the Quad, the you know much vaunted D10? Do, do, do you think they've sort of had any effect yet or, or they need to go much further? So those are critical in that they're fora for coordination, right? So they provide the necessary channels for this to happen. Now it actually has to happen. And I mean, part of like... Glad I'm in London right now. The UK is pretty critical for this, um, I think is another B. So you just listed so many international groupings and all of those are necessary, but also they're not all talking together. Like you get EU-US coordination, you get quad, um, you get the transatlantic relationship, but like, you know, no one of those entities can come up with the same idea, let alone having all of them. And I think the UK is pretty critically positioned in all of this because it can negotiate with all of these players. UK and the US have their special relationship. The UK can work with the EU, can also work with India. Um, and I think that makes the UK in particular and also the UK US dynamic particularly valuable at this point. Yeah, I think, I mean, I hope that we're making a start, um, you know, through moves such as joining the the CPTPP. And uh, I hope that, you know, we're able to, to flesh out some of these uh, cooperative policies moving forward. Emily, it's been a, a pleasure to finally sit down and, and chat today. Thanks very much for coming on the Talks on China podcast and enjoy the rest of your time in the UK. Thank you. And thank you for having me.